With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalise and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in extraordinary. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. India has 59 cities with a population over a million, but most of them are decrepit, overcrowded, and unlikely to be the engines of growth the country needs. Our correspondent says letting cities look after themselves a bit would help a lot. And if I asked you to think of a video game, there are reasonable odds you'd think of some violent first-person shooter affair. But there's a kinder, gentler trend in gaming. Turns out even the game's developers are getting tired of all that killing. First up, though. In May, Bola Tinubu was inaugurated as Nigeria's president. And as with pretty much every Nigerian election before it, the result was disputed in court by his challengers. We won the election, and we'll prove it to Nigerians. Atiku Abubakar and Peter Obi, who came second and third in the poll, brought several petitions to a court in the capital, Abuja. One accused Mr. Tanubu of electoral malpractice. Another alleged he wasn't even qualified to run in the election. The stakes were high. If any of those challenges were upheld, the judges would probably have called for a new election. But yesterday, on the president's 100th day in office, they said there wasn't enough evidence. The vote would stand. Today is a great day for Nigeria. The vice president and plenty of Mr. Tanubu's supporters have rejoiced. The Nigerian judiciary had proved itself to be the guardians for justice and fairness against the sirens of deception. His legal troubles may be behind him, but Mr. Tanubu's problems running the country are far from over. So after about 100 days in office, Bola Tinubu, the president of Nigeria, is getting mixed reviews. My co-host Ore Ogunbihi has been reporting from Lagos for the past week. Investors, on the one hand, seem broadly happy with his performance, but for the average Nigerian, things look pretty dire. And now the small gains that he's made in the first few months, the reforms that he's been lauded for are at risk of being reversed. So, Ore, you're used to being on this side of the microphone, but this week you've escaped. You're back in Nigeria and covering the goings-on in Lagos. What have you been hearing? Well, everyone just seems pretty upset with how much everything now costs. Inflation is at its highest that it's been in 18 years and is probably going to keep getting higher. So that means that things like the price of rice, for example, has almost doubled in the past few years. The price of Gary, for example, which is another cassava-based staple that is a very key part of lots of people's diets, has also gone up significantly. So people aren't happy. People are quite worried that things are already looking this bad so early on into this new presidency. 
And so what is it that's giving ultimately all these people this worry? What has the new president done to to generate all this? I think the most significant change has been the scrapping of Nigeria's fuel subsidy. This is something that The Economist has been calling for for years. The country was spending billions. Last year, they spent $10 billion subsidizing the price of petrol. So removing it was something that had to be done. President Tinubu needed to free up those revenues and just let the market do its thing. But the drastic increase in petrol prices has meant that people's pockets have taken a huge hit. Prices at the pump have more than doubled overnight and transport fares have just gone soaring. The subsidy removal has really affected me. Not even me in particular, it has affected every Nigerian. Because I spoke to one man called Blessing Emerson and he told me a little bit about how this change has impacted him. That's, for me, Tinubu is, is not doing fine. You look at people that are going to work every day, they are paying times too of what they used to pay before and their bosses will not increase their salary. So a lot of people that are working for people right now in Nigeria are not happy. They are not happy. You see somebody waking up in the morning, squeezing his whole face because they don't want to go anywhere, but it's just that they don't have an option. So you just have to keep going, you know. But transport fares is only one part of the story. It's not just those that have gone up. Many Nigerians who are forced to rely on diesel-powered generators for their electricity have also been impacted by the rise in petrol prices. That means it affects how much it costs people to run their homes and also to run their businesses. So the government must know that this is not going down very well with the people. Well, exactly. They were considering a monthly cash transfer of about $18, about 8,000 naira, to soften the blow for the country's poorest. It would have been a great idea. But instead, political squabbles and infighting about who gets what and who should be entitled to even get the transfer have made the rollout quite difficult. And instead, you've got state governments giving people these little portions of rice and oil and sometimes a bit of spaghetti in a sandwich bag. And those individual portions, those individual palliatives, as they're called, are not doing much to alleviate things at all. But at the outset here, you mentioned that investors seem to be happy with how the president is doing. Why that disconnect? I actually met someone who's a lawyer and investment banker. She told me that if Tinubu was to walk into her office today, they would bow at his feet. The kind of reforms that he's making are seen as being quite market-friendly. So investors are happy about the fuel subsidy removal, for example, because in simple terms, they're hoping that these freed-up revenues can be used to stimulate growth. And they're also celebrating changes that Tinubu has made in the foreign exchange market. So previously, under Mr. Mifili, the ousted central bank governor, there were several tightly controlled exchange rates for different parties. So, for example, if you're an airline, you got a different rate from parents trying to pay foreign school fees, that kind of thing. But this multiplicity of rates was confusing. Nigeria has quite limited supplies of foreign exchange. And so as a result, the black market just ran wild. The central bank would have an official rate, but everyone else was buying their dollars and their pounds at a much pricier black market rate, which the bank couldn't really control. So now the central bank has freed up the currency, operating what they call a managed float, to try and let the Naira find its natural market level. In effect, they've devalued the currency. The day after it was announced, the Naira actually weakened by about 29% on the dollar. So yes, this is a market-friendly reform. Investors seem kind of happy, but it's had its drawbacks. Well, not least that the Naira is worth so much less so suddenly. Absolutely. But there are other more specific issues. So firstly, the changes coincided with back-to-school season. Given that Nigeria has hundreds of thousands of students being educated abroad, that kind of demand does actually shift the needle, especially given how thin the supply is when it comes to foreign exchange. 
Secondly, it looks like the central bank was ill-prepared. There was no war chest or sizable foreign currency reserves to anchor the market, to cushion the shock of the devaluation and clear this pent-up demand and then stop those rates from spiralling. But also, lastly, interest rates are just still too low to attract the kind of money that Nigeria needs at the moment. A few weeks ago, the IMF actually came out to say that Nigeria's monetary policy is currently too loose to stabilise the currency. In theory, a loan from the IMF would make sense, but the IMF doesn't have a great reputation in Nigeria. Nigeria's allies, regional banks, even the World Bank perhaps could have offered some kind of stopgap. But for now, it just seems like the Naira is in free fall. These exchange rates just keep on rising. So clearly then a very rocky 100 days in office for Mr. Tanubu, not only with the people in the streets, but also in the courts. Where do you see this going next? Well, the general sense is that some of the big reforms that are being so celebrated that Tinubu should be quite proud of are actually at risk of being reversed. So firstly, you've got trade unions who want the oil subsidy back, and they've been quite clear about that. The president's spokesperson has ruled it out, but he has also promised to keep prices down, which suggests otherwise. Something's got to give. And then you have the question of boosting government revenues, which is its own problem, given just how much vandalism and theft is eating into Nigeria's oil proceeds. Tinubu is currently in India, ahead of the G20, hoping that he can entice some investors to come to Nigeria. And then there's also the question of foreign exchange. Nigeria is so import dependent that there's only so low, I'd argue, that the Naira can go before the bank is forced to re-intervene to stabilise the currency against the dollar or belatedly perhaps procure some kind of money that could anchor the market like they should have done a bit earlier. More broadly, Jason, the president needs a plan, a grand plan. And so far, it doesn't appear that he has one. Ore, thanks very much. It's great to be hearing from you from the field. Thanks for having me, Jason. With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalise and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in Extraordinary. Four and a half years of doing this show, and this is the first time I've said this. How would you like to make a small amount of cash? We're doing some research to help us to continue to improve our shows and looking for listeners to participate, particularly those who haven't filled in one of our surveys before. We'll be keeping in touch with you via WhatsApp over eight weeks, and then it's payday. A modest one. Help us out by clicking the link in the show notes. When I flew to Bhubaneswar recently to see what the city is like, I was told it's improving dramatically. Leo Marani is an India correspondent for The Economist and is based in Mumbai, which he insists on calling by its former name, Bombay. India has many, many big cities, medium-sized cities, small cities. It's a big place, as you know. And so I hadn't really given Bhubaneswar very much thought. The truth is most people in India don't give the state of which it is the capital, which is known as Odisha, very much thought either. So when I showed up there, I have to admit I did not have tremendously high expectations or indeed any expectations. 
What I found there was really surprising. It's a very pleasant city. It's a well-run city. It's a clean city. It has a functioning and decent public transport system that relies mainly on buses. It has plenty of greenery. It has very nice street lighting, nice broad pavements for people to walk. And then the most astonishing thing is that the state government has promised in Bhubaneswar as well as in other cities in Odisha that you will soon be able to drink the water that comes out of a tap. Now, let me explain to our listeners in the West for whom this may seem like no big deal. It's astonishing. Nowhere in India do you drink water out of a tap. I have long believed that the mark of a developed country is one where you can drink water out of a tap. I live in one of the fanciest corners of Bombay. I cannot drink the water out of a tap unless I'm feeling extremely adventurous. So Bhubaneswar in many ways is this sort of surprising success story in terms of an Indian city. Unfortunately, it is not what most Indian cities are like. So it's not the way most cities are. How are most cities then? I'll be blunt. They're a complete catastrophe. They're extremely polluted. The traffic is largely unregulated. There's incredible noise pollution. There's not enough affordable housing. There's not enough middle-income housing. Roughly half the people in Indian cities, according to the UN, live in slums. There's not enough sanitation. There's not enough public education. There's not enough healthcare. There's not enough greenery. And as a result, they're extremely hot. So they're all in all a disaster. I mean, just, you know, it's a 360 degree disaster. Now, this is important because estimates vary, but essentially about half of India's 1.4 billion people live in cities. 59 Indian cities have a population of more than 1 million people. And India's urban centers really are the engines of its economic growth. They generate 60% of its GDP. They will, in the coming years, be responsible for the vast majority of population growth. And they need to function much, much better in order to propel India into rich world status, as the Prime Minister has declared that he wants the country to be, and indeed, as many Indians want to be. But so long as Indians who live in these cities can't find homes, can't even trust the water that they drink or wash their hands, that's simply not going to happen. So what to make of this study in contrast then, when you say that Bhubaneswar is is, uh, the way Indian cities should be, why is it so far and above the way Indian cities mostly are? So in a way, Bhubaneswar's success is representative of a much broader problem. At independence, when the framers of India's constitution sat down to decide how power should be shared in a federal union, They talked a lot about the powers of the federal government. They talked a lot about the powers of the state government. Cities were really not given very much thought. There's barely a mention of them in the constitution. It was only in the 1990s that cities were given any formal power. And even then, states have been reluctant to devolve this power. Now, the reason for this is partly to do with the founding fathers of India. So Mohandas Gandhi, popularly known as Mahatma Gandhi, one of his many famous sayings is that the soul of India lives in its villages. And more importantly, at the time, most of India's voters lived in its villages. So for decades, it was easy enough to ignore India's cities. It was sort of chugging along. Over the past couple of decades, it's become very obvious that cities need attention. So the previous government started a program to regenerate India's cities, to give them funds so they could do things that would make them better. And then the current government has turbocharged these efforts and launched lots and lots of schemes. Now, all of this is fine, but it's still very, very top-down. And similarly, coming back to Bhubaneswar, It's doing well because the state government cares, the chief minister of the state cares, the state bureaucracy cares. 
But the problem here is it, cities still do not have the autonomy or the independence in order to do things for themselves, which is the same problem everywhere else in the country. I mean, Bombay, the commercial capital of India, the financial capital, the media capital of India, it hasn't had any elected representatives for over a year now, and barely anybody seems to have noticed. So you mentioned this this turbocharged effort essentially to get money into cities to develop them adequately, but you didn't say anything about fixing that structural problem that cities don't have their own sort of self-determination. Throwing money at the problem has helped. For example, I mentioned earlier that about half of India's city dwellers live in slums. What Bhubaneshwar has been doing is it's been giving people who live in slums title to their land. Once it does that, it then follows up by giving them street lighting and sanitation and water. Then they go a step further and they've recognized what they call a fourth tier of government. So they form these groups between city authorities and slum dwellers in order to consult them with the problems facing the slum dwellers on the basis that the people who are there are best equipped to know the problems and come up with solutions. But handing that kind of power to the slum dwellers to be fully empowered citizens is still not actually empowering the local government. You've hit the nail on the head. A fourth tier of government is all very good, a nice idea, but not every city in India is the same, obviously. If you have the central government setting priorities, some of those priorities don't work for everyone. So what you're saying here is that the solution is simply that evidently missing tier of government. So again, this is not a uniquely Indian problem. This is how cities tend to be at this stage in a country's development. Now, for example, in the mid-19th century, Charles Dickens went to New York, was utterly horrified. There were parts of New York that he thought were comparable to the most notorious slums in central London. Slums that today, incidentally, are amongst the most attractive bits of central London. Similarly, 10 years ago, Beijing was the byword for ghastly pollution, not Delhi. That has changed as well. These have become more attractive places to live. Now, I know this sounds like a silver bullet, create a new tier of government and everything will be fine. But this is not an overnight fix. It is the work of years, it is the work perhaps of a generation, but it can be done. And Indian cities can become clean, attractive, well-functioning, desirable places to live, places that people from all over the world will want to come, just like they do to New York and to London and indeed to Beijing. Leo, thanks very much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Jason. Thanks for having me. Vember is the story of a Tamil family who immigrate to Canada. It's all about the mom and her relationship with her family members, particularly her son, and how she shares her culture with her child through cookery. Colin Campbell writes about video games for The Economist. She cooks delicious food like biryani, and you can almost smell the aromas as you're playing the game. The game involves lots of recipes, and puzzles that are centered around the recipes, but also the stories of the families as they go through various life stages and as they deal with topics like immigration and identity in a foreign country. Vember was made with a budget of less than a million dollars. Most video games cost up to 100 or even 200 million dollars to make. But one of the biggest differences is that there is no violence in Vember, there's no shooting. Unlike games like Call of Duty or Assassin's Creed, you're not required to kill anybody. Vember is part of a trend of more and more games coming out that gamify non-violence, that do not feature any kind of running around shooting guns. 
Recently, Steam, an online game retailer, held a sale offering nearly 250 wholesome games that do not feature any violence. And such a notion would have been impossible until the recent past. Few games didn't involve bloodlust until fairly recently. Having said that, non-violent games do go back to the distant past. Remember Pong, the two-dimensional tennis simulation that goes all the way back to 1972. Obviously, sports simulations have been popular for many years, including the FIFA and the Madden series. But other games that have come out recently show that there's a great demand for non-violent games. Nintendo's Animal Crossing series has you living on an island, growing plants and making friends with your neighbours. City Skylines is about planning urban developments. But video games are rooted in violence. The easiest thing to code in the world is one thing, shooting at another thing. There are a number of factors that are contributing to the rise of kinder, gentler games. One is simply a backlash by people who design games. Many independent developers who can choose their own projects simply do not want to spend their careers designing games about killing. Another factor is simply the diversity of people who play games. Looking back to the 1990s, games were targeted at marketing and made for young men. But games today are played by women, older people, and across the spectrum of society. I spoke to the developer of a popular narrative puzzle game called Unpacking. In that game, a young woman moves from one place to another, and the puzzle is all about just simply fitting your stuff into your new apartment. But it's also about her emotional and romantic love life. She said that part of the premise of Unpacking is a recognition that a lot of women play games these days. And she said that many of her players are in fact women. Peaceful experiences can exist alongside conflict and bloodshed. The most lavish productions and biggest commercial successes in gaming still usually include slaughter, but that's true also of Hollywood films. Violence is not likely to leave the games industry anytime soon, but as more developers and gamers choose a side, we are likely to see more non-violent games. That said, of the top 20 top-selling premium games this year, 15 feature combat. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. We've got some news for you if you're a subscriber. The Economist's app now has a dedicated tab for this and all of our shows. It's the easiest way to tune in every day. And if you're not a subscriber, check out the special offer we've got, a free 30-day digital subscription. Just go to economist.com slash intelligence offer or click the link in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. 
Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys' club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.